Hello and welcome to the 1201 podcast. My name is Calm Watts and this week I am joined by Callum Roper. And this week we are also joined by our token Lib Dem, uh, George Potter. Yep, hello. He's a councillor down south somewhere. Yes, I'm a borough councillor in Guildford in Surrey. Right, and uh, that's just to give us a bit of an outsider's perspective, I suppose, on the news of the world and uh, locally as well. Uh, at the moment, the uh, storm is raging outside. We have gale force winds in places. Um, but across the Irish Sea, we have uh, a general election going on, don't we? Uh, we don't have the results from that yet. I think counting just started, didn't it? Yeah, I think it's going to take up to two or three days normally to get the results in full. Mm. What, are the, what are the exit polls saying about that? It was 22% on the three leading parties, so Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin, all on 22%. Mm. Obviously, with the proportional system, it might go up and down slightly bit. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's a very interesting outcome. It's not, it's not the first time that you've seen a third party surge in an Irish general election and quite often these surges have proved to be short-lived but regardless it's a really remarkable performance for Sinn Féin um, and really you know, Irish politics has been for most of the 20th, 20th and 21st century been a duopoly of two big parties which actually have very little difference between them and obviously part of why Sinn Féin has done so well they're effectively rejecting that duopoly and saying there should be a different way of doing things. Mm. But on the other hand, they're likely to be hampered by the fact that the other two big parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, aren't, are both, have both said publicly that they wouldn't work with them. And that also, because not anticipating such success, Sinn Féin have only stood a relatively small number of candidates, on average only one candidate per constituency, which could mean that despite having a higher vote share than the other parties, they may well end up with less seats. So be quite interesting to see how it turns out. Because, mm, I mean, most people have probably heard of Sinn Féin. Obviously, historically, the political wing of the Irish Republican Army. Um, I think that's a fair yeah, characterisation. Um, sort of left-wing, I suppose, in their, in their general politics? They're a, very, they're a very interesting party ideologically, in that they have definitely they have always positioned themselves on the left, mm. very much with a sort of a socialist identity in terms of their politics, but again, obviously in Northern Ireland they've recently moved quite significantly to sort of a social liberal position on issues like abortion, uh, on same-sex marriage, and they've done the same in Ireland, obviously, because they're the same party north and south of the border. Um, but equally, of course, they've had very varying views on, uh, on the issue of EU membership for Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also had, you know, Quite some, and also of course they have still had uh, links with, um, of course, the IRA, and it's actually not surprising that they have been unable to achieve any kind of breakthrough of this kind until they finally got a leader who ha- who was from a different generation. Yeah, the trouble. Jerry Adams and, stepped down and was replaced by Michelle O'Neill. No, well, she, she's in Northern Ireland. Isn't she? No, yes, yeah, she's in yeah. Northern Ireland. Um, but yeah, so and obviously that also helps, and, and of course it's again worth noting that a lot of Sinn Féin's support is coming predominantly from younger people, people who do not remember the bad old days of the IRA and the Troubles, mm. and to prepare to draw a line under it and say, well, actually, on housing, on health, you know, we like what Sinn Féin are saying, mm. whereas the other two parties in old generations are predominantly still viewing no, Sinn Féin as sort of 
beyond the pale. Yeah, they're quite uh, well, that's appropriate reference, Irish yeah. reference there. Um, so, what do we know about the other two parties? Are they? Oh, the, well, the, they're just they're just standard neoliberal sort. Of no, no, that's not true at all. I mean, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I mean, the, the the remarkable thing about Irish politics from an outsider like those of us in Britain is that so many of the parties are still defined by their origins in the Irish Civil War. Obviously, the Sinn Féin completely rejected any kind of um, of legitimacy of government. Uh, either way, the uh, in based on the Anglo-Irish Treaty, um, whereas Fianafile, uh, so Fianafile and Finnegail are basically the two different sides of the uh, Irish Civil War. Uh, so as a result, they both you know they both use the colour green uh, for their party emblem. Um, all three of them do. Yes, all three of them do. Variety. Yes, yes. Um, and they FF and FG, you know, they they both share broadly sort of centrist economic policies. They go veering vaguely towards uh, centre right. I mean, yeah, but then again, the same could be said of Sinn Féin. None of them object to the very low corporation tax rate at the moment in in Ireland. Um, both of them have tended to be. Uh, FG and FF have both been sort of fairly socially conservative, just sort of moving with public opinion, not leading it. Uh, and both so, have, had, have had a fairly a vaguely statist approach to public services, which I think is true of, of, uh, of all the parties in Ireland. So it's, it's quite bizarre really to have two parties where... They're basically the same. They're basically the same, uh, this, defined solely by their differences in a civil war almost a century ago. So this demonstrates that there could be a change coming over Irish politics. We've we've seen the right, I mean, the, the Irish Labour Party's not really anywhere uh, in Ireland. I think in the last dial era, they had seven out of 106 seats, 60 seats. I think they're only on about 4% in the exit poll for this general election. But things could be changing. We've seen in Northern Ireland the People Before Politics movement, which is non-partisan, um, has been growing in popularity over the last few years, so it could be very interesting to see what happens in this general election and in future ones. And, and of course, also worth noting, the Greens have done uh, obscured by Sinn Féin, but the Greens have actually also had a very good performance in the Irish election, as indeed they have been having in Northern Ireland as well. So again, it's, it's uh, yeah, definitely a time of change. So in, moving over back to England, um, probably the biggest story of the last week or so has been the terror attack in London. Uh, if you look at the timings, it was actually quite a rapid one. Uh, it started at four minutes to the hour. I can't remember exactly what, what the time was. Uh, and it was over in about three or four minutes. But its impact um, could be quite substantial because of the reaction to it. Um, at the moment, I believe the government is trying to push through emergency legislation. Yeah, um, they're, they're very much looking to shut down this, this current early release programme that they have. Mm. Uh, and this legislation will stop that. So anybody imprisoned uh, currently for terror offences, some of them have the potential to be released early, like the last two attackers, um, and the government wants to end this, but it's rather concerning that effectively we're going towards this, this line of indefinite prison sentences. Yeah, mm. I, I mean, so, so the government's objection in effect is that this is somebody, in this case the Streatham attack was somebody who was released um, by automatic process of law. Um, there's no parole board involved, um, and so they're saying they want they're going to be introducing this so-called counter-terrorism bill, 
uh, to basically ensure that anybody convicted of terrorist offences must spend a minimum of 14 years in prison and that all releases, no releases can happen until somebody served two-thirds of their sentence and been reviewed by the parole board and uh, also alarmingly perhaps they want to uh, apply this law retrospectively to existing prisoners, mm. people convicted under current, uh, under previous sentencing regimes. And that, that's one of the sort of uh, alarming things about it in a way. I was listening to someone, I think it was, uh, it was actually on Classic FM, I think, on the news there, that they were interviewing someone. It could be wrong, it might have been Radio 4. That, that demonstrates my Borgie credentials for the day. Um, but uh, they, there, was a, there was a legal expert on there who said that if they try and process this law, it might actually come up against one of the key principles of British law, which is that someone who's committing offence needs to know the potential penalty penalties that might come as a consequence of doing it, so it might end up being struck down in the courts uh, on that basis. Well, again, this is I think I think I think flags up two issues. Is on the one hand, I don't think this government cares a great deal at all about whether or not a law will actually survive a ch legal challenge, whether it will actually be effective. I think they're far more concerned in quote unquote sending a message uh, and appearing tough. Um, mm. But again, you know, you have to consider that in the case of the Stefan Mataka, you have somebody who was, to my understanding, is they were arrested and convicted for distributing leaflets, extremist leaflets advocating terrorism. And then after their prison sentence has been served, uh, they were released, they were being trailed by the police, uh, and they then went on to commit this terrorist attack, which Fortunately, in which they were, the attacker was the only person who ended up being killed. But I think you also, but you know, it's worth noting this person. You, know, you they can't, unlike previous cases, the government can't try to blame this on the previous Labour government. This person was arrested under a Conservative government. This person spent their time in prison under a Conservative government, and they came out uh, of prison under a Conservative government, having gone from distributing leaflets to be to being willing to try to kill people. I think mm. that in itself raises, raises the far more bigger question of how are longer prison sentences in any way effective when you have people going into prison partially radicalised and coming out fully radicalised? Mm. That, that is the real issue, and unless you fix that, no sentences will ever really solve the problem. Well, it's, the, it's the problem with the rehabilitation, clearly, mm. because you can put them into prison for the rest of their life. They're not going to be rehabilitated. There's no point in putting them in prison. Well, I, I there, mean, there really is it, isn't, isn't there an issue of public safety? Well, the, isn't that the isn't is that a, the first consideration? Well, that, that should be the first consideration. But the way you make public safer is using rehabilitation. What you don't do is lock them off, lock them away, and throw away the kid. I, th I, th I think you know, even not to set aside public safety, but even though, even if you talk about from an approach of of other of other approaches, if you've got people going to prison. It costs an absolute fortune to keep them there, and it doesn't. It is not make sense to leave somebody locked up for decades at public expense. When actually, de-radicalisation de programmes can and do work in a lot of cases. The issue here is, of course, that because of cuts to prison services, there often aren't enough uh, prison officers to properly maintain order to properly run the prisons effectively, mm. which in turn leads to terrorist prisoners, of, uh, a terrorist, those convicted of terrorist offences, often being uh, 
confined to special wings of the prison with other like-minded with those convicted of similar offences. The idea being that to stop them from radicalising the rest of the population. But then all that basically means is you're taking anybody convicted of terrorist offences and looking them up with other people who share the exact same world view and then we act surprised when after they've served a prison sentence they come out just as radicalised, if, if not, not so. more, if not yeah. more so. And again, you know, with the parole service being cut, you know, mm. again, there's, you do not have an effective parole service. Uh, the parole board is underfunded, our courts are underfunded, yeah. our police are underfunded. You know, it's no good looking people up if you don't actually have the other parts of the system working well enough I mean, to stop them being a threat when they get released. The probation service has only just been taken back in-house uh, after a, a failed attempt at privatisation, so I know that's in, yeah. uh, in a lot of uh, disarray at the moment. And, and I think we also have to consider that actually this is being a government operates very much with absolutely no regard whatsoever for civil liberties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can see you, you can see in this case, but in many others, but you know, only a couple of weeks ago the government was talking about saying they should have mandatory so-called lie detector tests uh, about to decide whether or not people should be released from prison, which is mind-boggling because of course so-called lie detector tests and polygraph tests are nothing of the sort. All they do are measure effectively whether somebody's nervous or not, yeah. and even then they don't do it which, which if you've got someone sticking a light in your face and asking you hard questions, you're going to be nervous, well, aren't you? Well, the thing is, like, anybody, anybody who who takes the time to read up about polygraphs can quite easily learn how to fake their actions and to pass and to, to pass a polygraph test. They have absolutely no scientific backing behind them to say they work, they t detect lies or not. They're just, you know, it, it's about as reliable as doing somebody's horoscope to yes, try to uh, determine whether they're and, and they're not, not and they're not used by the courts anyway. I don't think they're considered admissible. No, no, of course not. Uh, but I can. I mean, what you said earlier, I think, is quite personal. In that, um, even if the government doesn't actually get this into law, um, it won't matter to some extent because uh, they will have already shown themselves to be tough on crime or whatever, or tough on terrorism in this case. Um, and when the courts strike it down, if the courts strike it down, that will just be another opportunity for the Daily Mail to say the enemies of the people are these chaps in yeah, wigs, I you mean, know. But also, um, I, but also again, I, I don't think we should be, we can absolutely count on the courts striking it down, but you only need to look at the Shamima Begum case to say where effectively the government's position now, as endorsed by the courts, is that if anybody could theoretically claim citizenship elsewhere, the Secretary of State has the power to strip from British citizenship. So, for instance, if you are a British person who happens to have Jewish heritage, the Secretary of State could effectively say, we're going to take away your passport because you would, in theory, have the right to Israeli citizenship. And it's fascinating in her case because, of course, Bangladesh, which is her alternative state, as it were, has said, well, she's never been here, she wasn't born here, and we have no connection to her whatsoever, so we're not going to give her citizenship. Yeah, and, and despite that, the, the, the British government is denying its responsibility. And, and, and I think that, that is actually a very good point, because what this is fundamentally about is it's about a very cowardly approach by our government. Because if somebody is born in this country, if they're raised in this country, Sorry. if they go to school in this country, and they then go on to commit terrorist offences or whatever in another country, mm -hmm. how dare we then try and wash our hands and say, oh, it's not our problem, somebody else should have to deal with it. It, you know, it, it, it really is utterly disgusting that we, are, that we have government that refu is refusing to take responsibility for the action of our own citizens and to actually deal with them instead of just trying to palm it off to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So what should we do 
as the left on this side of the table, and this is liberals as well, to uh, oppose what's happening at the moment. Callum. Well, I suppose it, it starts with ourselves challenging, challenging the notion that locking people away indefinitely is going to solve the issue of terrorism and radicalization. We actually need to have a long conversation about we need to be firstly looking into our probation services, making sure that people are getting de-radicalised where it's possible. We need to be making sure that the prison service is properly equipped to prevent this. What we do not need to be doing is locking people away indefinitely in my opinion. It's actually probably going to save money if you spend that money on uh, rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. But we also need to challenge this sort of tabloid media approach to to this because they would quite happily cheer this on, they would quite happily see this happen for the very reason that it feeds into that narrative that they're the enemy. That these people, largely, if you look at their backgrounds, they've been socially deprived, they have had issues in childhood, and they've been radicalised by people outside of this government's control. We should be looking at people doing the radicalisation, not the victims of radicalisation, mm -hmm. and looking to get rid of that where we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think actually that last point is a very, is a very good one as well. We need to, to have a real, a realistic, hard-headed conversation in this country about radicalisation and how it is happening. And it's not just uh, Islamist extremism that we're dealing with here. You know, you only need to look at, say, uh, academic research into YouTube and similar to see that actually there's a lot of far-right radicalisation happening in this country as well, completely under the, the noses of parents, of teachers, of authorities, and. But again, rather than actually dealing with this problem, or even acknowledging it exists, we're just focusing on tough-sounding sentences. But, but I also think, actually, when we talk about ways we can effectively challenge what government is doing, it's worth taking a good look again at the uh, at the civil liberties campaigning uh, in opposition to the new Labour government, particularly on things like, say, uh, ID cards. because. What worked there was you had on the one hand a genuine concern about civil liberties, uh, the infringement on privacy of having ID cards, but that was then very effectively coupled with practical, hard-headed uh, objections and analysis of the ways in which this system simply would not work and could not work and put people at risk. Mm. It, it's very easy for people to uh, to dismiss as being a niche concern the idea that oh it's an infringement of my civil liberties to carry a to carry an ID card is quite another when you say well the government is going to be building this giant database of all your personal data it is not going to be able to keep it secure it is not going to keep it accurate and it is going to put you know your data at risk and it's going to cost a fortune and yeah I think that's the same sort of approach we need to be looking at here is yes it's an attack on civil liberties also even by its own stated aims it's a waste of money and simply will not work to make the public safe. It would be interesting to hear what Keir Starmer uh, would have to say about that, uh, Director of Prosecutions from 2008 to 2013 and uh, Labour leadership contender. But we'll come on to the, uh, the leadership election uh, in a few moments uh, in the meantime. Uh, just turning to local politics, uh, we want to talk about the fair funding review that's going on at the moment. Um, I think we were talking about beforehand how this largely affects top tier local authorities, so mostly the shires. So, so yeah, just just to clarify, uh, in places where you have a county council and
and district councils. This is a thumb. This affects uh, county councils, in but in the metropolitan areas in London, uh, in Merseyside, Greater Manchester, and so on, it affects all councils because there's only one layer of councils. Mm. And um, we are actually in Lincoln. We were concerned about how we would be affected by this. What were the statistics you managed to pull up, uh, Callum? When the laptop works, I'll be able to get them off. Because I think I think it was for actually Lincolnshire and indeed Lincoln is meant to benefit. Is L- Lincoln, Lincoln will be benefiting because um, the formula's changed, doesn't it? Yeah. So I mean, so the fair fun- this is the the so-called fair funding review, which is effectively an exercise which is meant to happen periodically to set out a long-term formula for funding local government. The idea being that it allows councils to plan with certainty because they know exactly what they're going to be getting year on year for the next four, five, six years, and so on. This one has been delayed repeatedly, but and it's still not due now. I Since think it's, 2015, I think. Is yeah, it was, it was yeah. meant to start. It's meant to come shortly after the 2015 general election, and here we are. Uh, it's now not meant to be coming until 2021, meaning it won't take in, come into effect until I think 2022. But one of the things that's come up in this, under modelling taken by the local government association, is that effectively. You're going to be the government is going to be taking just over a quarter billion of pounds of funding from councils, particularly predominantly in so-called red wall seats, seats which areas which used to have Labour MPs and now have newly elected Tory MPs, mm. and this quarter billion pounds of funding taken from them will effectively be redistributed to other areas, quite predominantly uh, to the leafy southern shires, which uh-huh. raises which raises a very big question around uh, well both the actual the sensibility of doing it from a practical point of view, but also the political implication of, congratulations, you've just got a new Tory MP, and by the way, we're cutting your public services. Does this not comfort you, though, as someone from the uh, the leafy shires? I mean, I must confess, I, I have, I'm in somewhat of two minds in this, because part of the big reason why you're seeing this shift in funding is because the government has effectively said, we're no longer going to... Uh, give more funding to deal with deprivation. We're no longer going to give you extra funding yeah. because you've lots of poverty in your area. Instead, we're going to give a lot more funding based on social care need. Now, councils in my, such as mine, Surrey County Council, which is going to be, I think, the second biggest winner of this new arrangement to the tune of 25 million a year extra. Um, we have long argued that actually, per person, we get considerably less funding from the government. Whereas, and having a much more dispersed population, it is a lot more expensive to administer public services. So on one hand, I think it's quite good that areas with particularly acute social care needs like Surrey are going to be getting more money. On the other hand, it may it, it offers me no comfort at all to think this is going to be coming at the expense of helping deprived areas elsewhere in the country. And what this really amounts to is it shouldn't be a case of taking money from one set of people to give to another set of people. The fact is we have a chronic underfunding of local government and it would be far better to yeah. see no net losers out, out of a fair funding view because we actually need funding increased if we actually care a fig about our libraries, our children's centres. Absolutely right. And so I think something that not, not a lot of people are aware of in the city of Lincoln, our district authority, um, is that the grants from, from governments, the general grants, has gone down from £12 million a year to, I think at the last count, £22,000. 
which is enough to pay one person's salary and not much else. And I kind of thought when I read that the first time, well, that's clearly just to employ the last person there to switch off the lights and uh, and wrap up the uh, wrap up the organisation because it's we're now entirely reliant. Or, or largely reliant on local business rates and other forms of, of gathering income. Yeah, but, but, um, but again, I mean... Of course, business rates are in decline because most of shoppers are moving online but, and things like that. Yeah, but, but more from that, though, because business rates, again, <coughs> are one of these other ones where the rates, the business rates, how, how high they are, are set uniformly across the country yeah. by national government, and all local government effectively does is act as the collectors on behalf of the Treasury. That's right. The money goes back straight to the Treasury, and then the Treasury in theory, gives money back to local councils. But as we've seen, the, the grant councils are getting is negligible nowadays. I think the typical council will have seen anywhere between 40% to six to 66% cuts mm. in their government funding over the past 10 years. At a, actually, less than 10 years, the past seven or eight years. And, you know, certainly in my council, we can see the effect of that. We are... We were being threatened. We had the very real possibility, under uh, a couple less than a year ago, that this year's settlement would involve negative grants, where councils such as Guildford, such as Lincoln, and so on, would receive no money from the government at all, and would actually have to make a net contribution from their own pockets to the treasury. Right. Which that at least appears to be off the, yeah, it appears to be off the table now, but. And I, think, and I think that's actually the very frustrating thing, is that what we have effectively seen is a huge portion of austerity has effectively just been saying we're going to devolve responsibility to local councils and let them act as the insulating there. They should get the blame, they'll get the blame for any cuts they make. Um, but essentially, you know, we, we keep it clean. We're not increasing headline tax rates. It's also your council tax that's going up, but that's nothing to do with us. Have we got the figures now? For yes, we have. So, um, is 37 out of 50 odd that they gained in terms of the Tory gains in the last election will be losing money? So that's quite a significant percentage. These are the red wall seats. The uh, red wall seats are amongst others. So mm. all, the, all these gains. So some of the hardest hit ones, Birmingham's going to be hit quite heavily. Um, with uh, West Bromwich, East and West, they could be losing about 15 million pounds into this new settlement. Uh, you can look down to some of these other councils. So Lincoln will actually be just about a net gainer in this, but places like Grimsby, again going to lose, mm. uh, Bishop Auckland, obviously on election night, that was a big headline grabber, that's going to lose out again. There's a lot of these working class communities are going to be losing out, even yeah. more than they have done, after the last decade, mm. when this does come in. So it's rather concerning. And, and are, are there, sorry, just a quick question as well, is there, are there any strings attached to how that money can be spent, or is it just a blanket? So no, so this is, this is just sort of the, the, the so-called block grant. Uh, but right. they can, so in theory they can spend it on, their, on anything, um, but it's worth noting that councils have statutory services, so they have some services that they can provide if they want to, mm -hmm. and some that they are legally obliged to provide. Social care is one of those they're meant to provide. Uh, children's centres, uh, libraries, etc. Those are also examples of statutory services. But what's also worth noting, though, is social care is by far the biggest uh, money grabber in terms of how much it needs. You can't, there's very little you can do to reduce the amount of social care spending you need to do. Whereas the libraries, for instance, if you've got, if you had in just one publicly funded library in all of Lincolnshire, that would count as the council meeting its statutory obligation. Interesting. So you can mm. see how actually a lot of, so 
a lot of this money is effectively already spoken for, even though in theory it's entirely up to council how they spend it. Mm. But of course it does beg the question of, will the government actually go through with this fair funding review, or will political priorities uh, change things? It's an inter mm. interesting to see what happens. I thought it was quite interesting this week, you mentioned statutory services. Uh, I think it was Joe Anderson, who's the mayor of Liverpool, um, said that the cuts are now threatening his council's ability to actually carry out those services mm. um, and he said and if that's the case well they're basically stuck between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand um, if they just continue to fund those services anyway then the administrators will get called in and the council will be dissolved um, uh, but on the other hand if they do cut it then obviously they're not meeting their obligations to actually do those social services so his answer to that presumably he said he's not going to make those cuts which means presumably he's going to rely on whatever borrowing he can do and on whatever reserves that they've got um, but are more councils going to be put in that position what does it mean for the future of local government? I think a lot of councils already are in that position, to be mm -hmm. frank. Um, it, you can you can you can eke things out more by a year, a couple of years, <coughs> more or less, mm. depending on how you balance the books, depending on how fiscally prudent you've been. Um, you know, but a lot of councils, including Surrey County Council, uh, are looking at, and indeed Liverpool are all looking, effectively facing a very real prospect of going the same way as Northamptonshire, where they effectively run out of money, can't provide statutory services, and you know, and the administrators are called to take over running the council. And it's also you know, worth noting, though, that the only other loophole way around this would effectively be to increase council tax, except, of course, the government hasn't restricted it so that if you want to increase council tax by more than 1.99%, you have to hold a public referendum on the issue. and which is effectively is a very good way of ensuring that you never ever get capped tax increases. So I think one of two things will happen. Either uh, the government will cough up some more money before councils go to the wall, or a lot of councils will go to the wall and then the government will be forced to cough up money. Uh, I think it's just a matter of which one happens first, really. It'll be interesting um, to see what their end game is. I know that in terms of, because I like to make sure that we talk about how we can fight back mm. against whatever the, the government's machinations are, um, I know that a lot of councils, um, cooperative councils in particular, uh, and in Lincoln as well, um, have done something called um, it's, uh, invest. That, so they basically use their ability to borrow at a very low rate to buy up um, investments. So in Lincoln, that was the uh, the new hotel, the Travel Lodge on Tenscroft Street, uh, which they bought up, and they had to, because of legal issues, um, source outsource it to the Travel Lodge. But that in itself, I think, it generates one hundred and forty thousand pounds a year in extra revenue. But it is still nowhere near enough to cover the costs, of course. But that is a way of that is a way of fighting back. And I know Stevenage as well, which is my hometown as well, has quite a large leisure portfolio, I, I which has been very helpful over the, the last the thing, ten years. The thing is, I would not call that fighting back on the basis that a lot of councils are doing it. My council does it, Gilbert yeah. Borough Council does it, uh, a lot of councils do it, but it's, it's in, in many ways it's not a substitute for proper funding. And, no, and, and it's, all, it's also yeah. it's highly volatile. So as an example, we have just about managed to close our, we just passed the budget last week, hmm. which included a £5 uh, council tax rise for a bandy household. But what that amount, but 
we only barely balanced our books and we and we and that was part of by saying two thirds of the way through the year, or three quarters of the way through the year, we basically told all of our departments to stop spending. And the big reason for that was that we had bought a a, a big building as an investment a few years back, and the tenant who had said they're going to be there for ten years decided to up and relocate after four years. So and that led to a shortfall of five hundred thousand pounds in our budget. Which when you've got your overall budget is only about eighty million pounds, is actually a fairly sizable hole. And in this case we were lucky in that the money we've been putting money from the rental income aside into a pot in case this happens. So overall we're going to just about break even uh, or, or despite the tenant moving out. But this does say that actually property investments are not a reliable source of income. They can be very volatile. And the last thing you want is to be going to your residents and saying, well, we spent to X tens of millions of pounds buying up these properties, but they're vacant now, so goodbye to your local community centre. It, it, the only substitute is what I would say is that something that I think would be very helpful, though, would be if councils and councillors of all parties, North and South, were to stop playing into this them, them against us attitude of saying, well, this council in the south part of the country seems to be doing better than we are, so it's unfair that they're getting this money, we'd like their money instead. But really, we should all be saying, no, it's not a matter of this council getting it better than us, but all, this council is getting it slightly less worse than we are. We have started to see councils start to collaborate a little bit more. You've got, um, the, there's a group that's formed independently at the government, uh, the Northern Powerhouse Network. Obviously, that was a, a buzzword invented by the government, but some of the other cities are taking it seriously. There's another group called Ten Cities, which I think Lincoln is involved in as well. Um, so we're getting that collaboration. As you say, I don't think we'll see massive change until we get a new government, whenever that comes. Um, but I think if we can lay the groundwork for councils working together, as you say, of, of all parties, because it's in our interests, yes, it then obviously when we do get a better government, then... Um, then we'll be able to do a lot more uh, yes, with it yes. to rebuild what's been destroyed. I think that's true. It's just something which I find quite frustrating is to use the Northern Powerhouse Network as an example. They very recently, a couple of years ago, they trumpeted this big report which claimed that um, and that cities like Birmingham, like Manchester, have received huge cuts compared to southern cities like Oxford. Except, of course, what they're omitting there is that. Oxford is a district authority which doesn't spend on social care or libraries or children's centres or anything like that. It spends on planning and bin collections. Uh, whereas, so, and there's a lot of. And housing, of, presumably. Not really, because again, councils can't really spend very much on housing. So, so. But so, in Lincoln, for example, it, I think the housing budget dwarfs. The, the rest of the budget by all, something like two to one all at least. Ca all councils have what are called HRA, housing revenue account yeah. budgets, but these are sort of very much sort of... Which are kept legally separate. They're legally yeah. separate yeah. and they're very fiscally neutral. Mm. Um, so they're sort of, and they basically they pay for themselves with rental income from properties. So, but, but I thought was essentially you had, you had this very much cherry picking of stats to say, well, this, this, these southern places seem to be getting it so much better, whereas you're not, they weren't really comparing like for like. They weren't looking at the county councils, which had suffered huge budget cuts, uh, just like the northern councils had done, they were cherry picking the, the the ones from the level below that to say, well, actually, they've had it nowhere near as bad. I just think it would be really nice if instead of trying to paint this as some sort of south versus north battle, 
but actually said, no, this is an issue of chronic underfunding of gov- government, the north end, and south, by the Conservatives. At the end of the day, there are working people everywhere, and exactly. they're all affected by this. And it's so always, we need we, we need more solidarity. Yes, that, that's because, that's, that's because, what we yeah, need. Because no matter where you are, it's always the poorest who are hit hardest by cars. Quite right. So, moving on then to, if you've managed to sit through the... Uh, uh, local government section of, uh, of today's podcast. Uh, we'll move on to the uh, Labour leadership, uh, the last segment today. Uh, Lincoln CLP has, of course, nominated Rebecca Long Bailey uh, for leader and Dawn Butler for the deputy leadership. I was there. I thought um, actually the deputy leaders, because what we did was we watched a half an hour clip of each leadership. Uh, debate uh, and then uh, there was a debate after that for an hour and then we moved to debate it was preferential voting um, I won't tell you exactly how the votes went but uh, ultimately that was the result I think a lot of people won over by Dawn Butler actually in the deputy leadership election um, I mean I, I thought at the beginning of this contest I really liked Richard Bergen I know you're going to scoff George um, coffee, but coffee, uh, coffee. because you were saying lots about community organising and uh, grassroots organising, but actually, when we saw Dawn Butler speak on the deputy leader, she not only said that, but she actually had a clearly delineated plan for how she's going to do that, not just to organise people, but to educate them as well. And that's a that's really a, important thing that we need to do. Education we've been talking about for quite a while. Mm. It's not just getting those activists out there, but so they know a bit more about what they're talking about. Mm. and also about the history of the party, where we're going, who we look out for, and also I think you, you get with an education programme, people naturally become more passionate of something they know about. Mm. You can have a debate about it on the doorstep or with some people online, and it, I think it will benefit the party in the long run certainly to have a, a much greater education programme. Hmm. We, we need to win the arguments not just on the doorstep but also in the pub, in the cafe, in the workplaces, yeah. around the dinner table. And th- well, maybe not around the dinner table, I think. Uh, maybe, 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 we need, yeah, maybe we need to have a, a, a safe place where we, people don't talk about politics so much, although personally I always end up doing that anyway. Um, but yes, no, we, we, need to, we need to win the arguments in civil society, we need to be connected with civil society and so on. Uh, the leadership uh, candidates, um, obviously we endorsed Rebecca Long-Bailey, um, Emily Thornbury had a really weird pitch, which was just nominate me because nominate me because because, because, I, because, because I, I need to be on the ballot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, I can understand that the merits of that argument, but it, it did come across slightly desperate. Yeah. Which is, which is a I shame. I feel kind of sorry for it. It is right? a shame, um, you know, but in the sort of democratically looking at if I didn't sort of put my now my colours to the mast as it were earlier on, mm. maybe I could have seen the merits in in getting along the ballot. Yeah, but I think a lot of people were far too decided by now by this point. Yeah, yeah. that they were going to switch tack and vote for So at the moment we're looking at the um, the number of nominations that have come in for each candidate in the leadership election. Uh, the Wikipedia page, uh, which I have checked, um, is actually a little bit more up to date than the official Labour Party page <laughs> in this respect. Um, uh, Rebecca Long Bailey has 123 CLPs, uh, Kia Starmer has 265, 
Uh, poor Emily Thornbury only has 18. I think she needs 33 to uh, get on the ballot. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. It's going to be close. Um, and then Lisa Nandy, she's got 54 CLPs, so she's on the ballot. Um, what do you think, as an outsider, George? What do you think is uh, what do you think is likely to happen? Oh, I mean, so obviously as an outsider, I haven't followed this process particularly closely. Um, but certainly, given the number of CLPs that have already made their nominations, and given that not CLPs are not obliged to make nominations at all, I think the time is very much running out for candidates like Emily Thornbury to, to get on the ballot. So I think actually the front runners we see now are likely to be the ones that are going to be on the ballot. Um, and it has been sort of interesting seeing different candidates and the, uh, and the different sort of analyses of, of, you know, of what went wrong and what needs to be done to fix it. Um, and yeah, it's sort of been interesting to see where to see where different ideas have been coming from. I know we were talking about earlier, for instance, this uh, thing where Rebecca Long Bailey has said that the Labour Party should back striking workers, no questions asked, which mm-hmm. was quite an interesting stance. Mm, yeah, no, it's. I mean, generally speaking, I I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's. I I can't think. People have said, well, I've put, thrown their hands up and said, under any circumstances, well, you know. But, I mean, the thing is, I have never heard of a strike, because you know, the, the threshold for going on strike is very high. At the end of the day, you're losing wages, you're potentially putting yourself, um, some bosses are actually quite supportive of strikers, by the way, um, but you're, sometimes, you're, you're potentially damaging that relationship. Uh, you might have conflict with your colleagues as well who aren't unionized or in different unions and so on. So it's a big ask to ask people to, to not go to work. And so I can't think of a strike that I've had heard of in my lifetime, 26 years, which hasn't been worthwhile or not fighting for a cause that was worthwhile. So I think that, you know, it's not really too much to, to ask that the Labour Party, which is connected to the trade unions, was founded by the trade unions, will actually unequivocally support striking workers. Well, she, she did go on to say at this rally, uh, a Labour leader must be as comfortable on the picket line as at the dispatch box, and I think that perfectly echoes what you're saying. Hmm. And I, I think actually that, that last bit, that last bit there about being as comfortable on the picket line, I think that is actually something which I find it's very difficult to, to possibly object to. I think for me, my concern is, <clears throat> I think a, a complete blank cheque is very much a hostage to fortune, and it's also it's a hostage to fortune which doesn't need to be given. I think Ed Miliband, for instance, got quite rightly got criticised for not supporting striking public service workers in 2011. Mm, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it's fair to say that yes, the default position of the Labour Party should be to side with striking workers. We've also got to think, remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago they had, for instance, uh, strikes by Fleet Street printing workers. Over things like their desire to keep, to maintain the closed shop, to have a system where you could only get a job working there if you were known to the union and recommended by somebody who already worked there, and very much, you know, effectively a strike to protect nepotism. And whilst I don't think you'd get those kind of things today, partly because the closed shop has long since been abolished across the country. Except in in, in universities, actually, where you're automatically enrolled in the students' union, which yeah. is. Uh, yeah. Although you can opt out. Yeah. So, so, no, so, I th- so I think whilst you might not get a strikes over the closed shop issue today, I think it does to me illustrate that you can't 100% always guarantee that every single trade union is always going to be striking on the base of what's best, um, you know, for 
for workers, or indeed for the pub, for the community as a whole. I mean, also you only need to look in France, for instance, where I mean, also there's been a lot of strikes recently, and but very I, successful I, ones. I, you'll, you'll note. So. Yeah, it's certainly effective. I, th- I think what, I, I, if, if, what yeah. say, effective in the extent of disruption caused. Perhaps not quite so effective in terms of the numbers of workers involved overall. It was very very high uh, involvement by particular unions and particular sectors, but an overall percentage of the workforce is quite low. But ultimately but, it worked, didn't it? Because the French government was going to raise the pension age and it was going to scrap. And we spoke about in an earlier podcast about how in some sectors workers who work underground and therefore in unhealthy conditions who are much more likely to die earlier in France have um, more uh, yeah, they have, more, they, have more, they have more advantageous retirement arrangements, yes. so they can retire earlier on a full pension because they're not likely it, to live as long. Exactly. And they, by the way, they've defended that successfully. Not, so I, striking, I, 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 striking I, I, has I, I, worked. I don't, I don't disagree that striking works, and I don't disagree in particular. Mm. But also, that I think it's only fair that if you're working in a, in unhealthy conditions, that you should be able to retire earlier. I don't object to any of that. But I think, on the other hand, though, some reforms which have also been opposed have effectively been an attempt to end the ridiculous situation in France where once you are hired full time you have a huge panoply of different rights of different entitlements mm-hmm. or different protections whereas uh, if you're a short-term worker brought on a temporary contract which rolls on indefinitely you don't have those benefits which has effectively led to an age divide in the French workforce where younger workers in particular are excluded from full-time contracts by employers from permanent contracts because they don't want to take the risk of taking on yet more liabilities to these employees. Well, that's and, interesting. I, I think we need a French correspondent. Perhaps. Yes, and everything's, you know, I can't pretend to be... Yeah, like the Irish question yeah, earlier, exactly. we could do an actual Irish person. Yeah, so so things, if yeah. you're listening and you're French or Irish, get in touch. I can't claim to be an expert on it, but certainly I think there is very much risk that unions exist to protect the interests of their workers, and I think that's fair enough. You know, if you've got the CBI to protect the interests of businesses, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't have trade unions to protect the interests of workers. But by definition, their loyalty, first and foremost, must be to the people who are their members. What is in the interest of their members is quite often, but not all the time, going to be what's necessarily in the best interests of the wider community or the workforce as a whole. And I think that to me is why. I hesitate a bit at the idea that any politician should say I'm going to give a blank check to always support. Yeah, you know, but I, I mean, I, I, I refer to you, you know, to what I said earlier is in that in most of the time, actually, strikes are in the interests of, of the wider community as well. Especially when we talk about public sector strikes, they're often about shortcomings in the public sector, yeah, and teachers, and so on. And by the way, if everyone, if working people, generally speaking, in any sector, are fighting for better pay then that will raise the pay grade in other sectors as well. That's the advantage. I think what some people are concerned about is, if you just indulge me a little bit of history, uh, in the 1980s when you had the the great miners' strike and so on, uh, one of the reasons that Neil Kinnock didn't back it, was the Labour leader at the time didn't back it, was because it was not democratically decided by a national ballot. And that is a massive, massive debate that I do not want to wade into. However, legally, you cannot have a strike now without a ballot anyway, so the question doesn't arise. The current uh, union laws do mean that a strike, you have to get, I think it's over 50% turnout. Yeah, it's, it's quite, which is too quite, high. Quite, quite onerous restrictions, actually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's restrictions, but in some ways I disagree. But I think, I think there is a subtle but important difference between 
the Labour Party should support striking workers by default, and the Labour Party should support striking workers under all circumstances. It's it's a very it's a very it's a very small difference in phrase, but actual implications and practice can be quite large. But 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 that setting aside, that what I also found quite interesting was that also uh, Rebecca Long Bailey also talked about how she wanted to uh, commission a, late, a trade union initiative to to recruit. Um, I think something like a million more trade unionists in red mm. wall seats, yeah. which I found it's definitely a striking idea. I'm, I wonder how striking it, idea. Yes, indeed. indeed. I, I do wonder how, how perhaps how practical it would actually be to accomplish. I think it's a good idea. I mean, if you, as a as sort of a young person, there's not many young people in in unions currently, and actually, I think she's saying something completely valid in that. We are currently kind of have a generation of workers that might not have that relationship with a union. Mm. They might they might have been broken down because of the anti-union laws, because people have lost their their respect for unions, or the, the, the unions have been degraded in the press to the point that nobody wants to be seen to be a member of them or associated with them. Mm. So I think it's completely right that a Labour leader, any Labour leader, whoever they are, should be encouraging union membership, and we should be ambitious about it. Because ultimately, a trade union is a good thing in the workplace. I think it, I think it's um, it shouldn't be a prerequisite for citizenship. But I think it's it's like people grow up kind of thinking, what I want in life is a house, a car, you know, a family, and those sorts of things. I feel like being a trade union member should almost be part of that. It's um, it's part of being civil society. It's part of when you are in a workplace you need to be connected to the person working next to you uh, and feel like you're part of the uh, of the same community in that and trade unions part of that i don't support the closed shop necessarily um, in fact actually i think it can be a route to complacency um, in the sense that well if you're the only trade union that's allowed in the workplace i think officials can sometimes it can lead to arrogance and ultimately it, uh, it will be to the detriment of members but i think we should be encouraging trade union mo uh, uh, membership because it's, it's like it's like if you become a chartered accountant that's you know, you join you join an organization to represent your industry if you're if you're you know in many other white collar professions you'll be part of some form of association and i think it's should be the same in, across the across the uh, across the workforce. Yeah, but I, I think, at least from my perspective, I think for actually the trade union movement as a whole, I, I don't disagree with any of those points. But I think actually, for the trade union movement as a whole, I think for a number of years, a number of decades, in fact, it's been quite guilty of effectively turning its back on entire sectors of the economy, on entire professions. On entire segments of the workforce. If you look at the big unions we have today, uh, to take, say, Unite the Union as an example, which is very much meant to be a general union, which anyone can theory join, mm -hmm. but if you actually look at where it actually does things, it is in large, uh, quite often large workplaces, quite often at large companies, and quite often with industries or sectors that involve either direct or indirect government support for the industry, whether it be in, say, defence industries or directly employed by the by the government. And I don't have any objection to that at all. But they do, as a union, for instance, they seem to do very little to try to help any of their members in other workplaces. Yes, they offer services, but they're not exactly going out into workplaces to try to unionise uh, in professions and workplaces which currently aren't unionised. I think you can say the same for most unions. If, you know, if you're working 
in a great deal of sectors, not necessarily well-paid sectors, but you know, say retail, anything from retail to software development. If you're looking for a union that would actually say, you know, accept as a member and actually support you and is knowledgeable about your profession and wants to unionise people in your profession, you could spend a long time looking without finding anything because actually there's very, you know, the trade union movement, to my mind, seems to be very much sort of backwards looking at a, a sort of an industrial model which, for better or for worse, no longer seems to quite exist in this country. And when you have such a much more atomised economy, a much more segmented economy, I think if you're going to want to say expand trade union membership, you also need to look at what can unions do to make themselves more appealing and to be more effective at appealing to people in these new professions, in these new industries. I, mean, I do agree, actually, to some extent that we haven't, as a movement, done enough. Um, I mean, I work for a trade union, um, and my particular branch represents people, does actually represent people working in 200, more than 200 different sites just in Lincolnshire. Um, so that's lots of, obviously there's lots of people we represent at the hospital, but we also represent people working in GP surgeries, people working in care homes, of which there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And by the way, if someone has a problem there, we're not going to abandon them. You know, we will always send someone send someone to help them. However, it's a lot easier to deal with systemic problems in the workplace if there are even three or four people who are working together in a workplace who are members of the union and are able to take some collective action. But, but and and that, we need to remember as a movement that that does make our job easier and we need to perhaps think about more how we organise in SMEs, small to medium-sized businesses and, and, and other and, similar and, and think, organisations. Point, because actually if you look at the health sector, there is an abundance of union, option, of union options, there is a very long and strong and proud mm. trade union history in that sector. And you know, it's, it's fairly easy to find. You know, you, it's quite possible to look up and say, okay, here are all the care homes, here are all the GP surgeries, here are all mm -hmm. hospitals. It's a quite clearly defined workforce. I think, as you say, where the gap comes is people often working in small and medium businesses which are by far the ones where you're most likely to get uh, exploitation and so on, and yet those are the ones where it's a lot more difficult to find a union that is automatically trying to battle on the side of those workers. I mean, for instance, <coughs> who is a trade union who represents Weatherspoon's workers or is seeking to represent Weatherspoon's workers? So the Baker's Union, I think. Yeah, that they, be? They've, they've done some work on that. I know it was last year or the year before we did have strikes at Weatherspoon's. Um, yeah. And also you've had the muck strike. Um, movement as well, they've been very good. Yeah, so things are changing. Things we are, are changing. Yes, I think, I think, I think where, where your point is really valid, I think, is the gig economy. Mm. How do we get people in the gig economy to sign up to unions if they don't know whether they're coming or going? Mm. I mean, they're, they're quite good at organising them themselves to no, some extent. But, but I, know, I, I know they have done in Uber, for, for example. I know that the, the Uber drivers have organised themselves and sometimes they, they they clash they can clash against traditional trade union hierarchies if you like which are organized for as George says um, a, a different industrial era and I think we need to work out how we mesh those together because you do need the resources of the union especially if you're going to take a case to court for example yeah. and, but, I, but I also think that is quite a telling point there have been some very good examples of unionisation in the gig economy, absolutely, but if you look at them, the vast majority of these have been by people 
in those sectors, taking it upon themselves to set up and organise the union, precisely because they were unable to find an established union willing to take them on, willing to help them. And I think, and I think where the challenge is going to be for the labour movement, the trade union movement, is <coughs> these new bottom-up unions and labour movements where they're existing, mm. they, they do not, in many cases, they don't necessarily see themselves or feel affiliated to the, exist, the wider movement as a whole. I think there's a real danger there that, well, at least the labour movement, that you get these unions which then have that, do not really have any kind of cultural or historical affinity to the labour movement as a whole, and certainly which aren't embedded in the culture in the same way. And I think, and, and that's you know, this conversation you could have for hours. But I think that's an interesting just, challenge. I think for all involved. Just to fill you in a little bit, um, a lot of those bottom-up organisations. Um, were actually given some impetus from outside in that they were approached usually I think in the case of Uber I might be wrong um, they were approached by international workers of the world yeah. which is an anarchist trade union exactly. as it happens which, but, and, which obviously by nature does not affiliate itself with political which parties. doesn't formally affiliate it with them. however I think that that is actually we have we should learn from that because yeah. um, all they did was basically say this is how you organise, here are the tools, um, and then they went away and did it. And that is, I think, what maybe Rebecca Long-Bailey, just to bring it back to the Labour leadership thing, maybe that's what uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey is sort of aiming at, is that this is how we can encourage people to organise themselves in the, in the workplace. And ultimately, I think that that will benefit the Labour movement as a whole, because it's always easier when people are networked and working together and in the in it's always in the interest, I would argue, perhaps you disagree, that, uh, that um, it will be a lot easier to organise in workplaces and push for changes to policy, like in the case of France as well, um, if you have a Labour government or a socialist government in the case of France. I mean, certainly I'd say that the, uh, the Fireman's Union would disagree with you given their strikes against the new Labour government that was busy cutting their pensions and labour conditions. Um, <coughs> and for which the Labour Party paid for because they disaffiliated and then reaffiliated more recently and they've had a lot more yeah. success in yes. defending yeah. their well, pensions. Yeah, yeah. Yes, which, I, mean, they I, have, I, I yeah. think what I think so the, the movement's changed yeah, if, as if, well if already. What, if what Rebecca Lockberg is talking about is indeed that sort of reaching out to people in other professions which aren't unionised and trying to help them to unionise themselves, I think that'd be a good thing. Although I think if that is what she's saying, it'd be very nice if she were to say that explicitly uh, rather than just the soundbite about one million more trade union members. Um, and yes, now I did have points. Yes, the Labour Party, the Labour movement has changed. We also think it's notable that we still we have yet to see a, a Labour government post New Labour. And whilst we, I think it's safe to say we all know that Conservative governments are quite bad for the workforce and for uh, trade unionists and so on. I think I think it has yet to be proven that a Labour government is going to be inherently better as such, other than. Uh, Better, if, better, better in and of its own virtue rather than by virtue simply of not being the Tories. Well, if we are successful, I, I hope, in getting Rebecca Long-Bailey, and if we do start organising people in their workplaces and recruiting a million, two million, three million, whatever uh, 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 workers, many as we can, that will make it a lot more easier to elect a Labour government, yep. and hopefully we can we can uh, prove uh, prove uh, uh, your point. But, but that actually, to me though, shows me is what to me I find most objectionable about this whole thing. If you look, she didn't say she wants to recruit one million more trade unionists nationwide. She, I mean, yes, she wants to grow the trade union movement. She said, 
But to say you specifically want to focus on doing it in the red wall seats shows this is very much seen through the prism of we want more trade unionists in order to help us win elections, rather than what I think what should be the case of the Labour movement, if it really is the political wing of the trade union movement, is about trying to help expand the trade union movement for its own sake and for the sake of the workers. I think while you're trying to tie the, the, the former to electoral success for the latter, then that to me does not seem as though you are entering it with the, right, with the correct mindset or the correct intention. That's something I have to bear in mind that obviously she is running to be leader of a political party and that the purpose of that party is to win elections as part of the Labour movement. So that, that sort of, this, that's going to colour what she, what she says, isn't it? And it is in the interests of, of workers and trade unions to have a Labour government. Because historically, I know you said that um, post-New Labour we haven't had a government, of course, um, but actually governments in the 20th century, Labour governments in the 20th century did significantly improve uh, working conditions and the law to uh, make it easier to organise in your workplace and the conditions of working people overall. Yes, so, I mean, and we can do it again. I mean, we will yeah, do it again. Yes, but you're talk I mean, when you're talking about a, a, a 50 year gap, I think it's quite, as I say, I think, I think it needs to, I think the theory is all very sound, but it doesn't actually need to be tested in action. But again, what I say is, to be a bit cheap on the point of Rebecca Lord Bailey, though, is I find it quite interesting the double standard of when they say something unpopular uh, and uh, it's for idealistic principled reasons, where they say something that's electorally, pop that's electorally, electorally popular but perhaps uh, less ideologically driven and less ideologically consistent, it's fine because they just need, they're just doing it because they need to be electable. I feel you perhaps need to have one standard or the other, not both at the same time. Perhaps we could improve for Rebecca Long-Bailey if anyone from her team is listening. Not just a million new members in the Red Wall, but 10 million workers across the country or something more uh, more appropriate to that, and then we'll get where we need to go. Uh, any final words before uh, before we close? Um, well, ju just noting that this is just interestingly just come in. Apparently, to go back to the very beginning of our discussion this evening, um, Mary Lou Macdonald, leader of Sinn Féin, has announced... It's Mary Lou Macdonald, yeah. Yep, okay. she has announced, yeah. No, she has announced that she's going to try to form a government without Fianna Foyle or Fine Gael. Interesting. Which really? could be very interesting to see. Well, watch this space. Then. Indeed. Indeed, watch this space. So thank you very much for listening. I think we're going to try and be on next week. Yes. yes uh, yeah. And we'll have... Um, I'm hoping Jess Williams from the uh, Socialist Students. So we're looking at the other side of the political spectrum. Uh, in Lincoln next week. Uh, join us for that and uh, have a good day.